So I'm going to pose you guys this morning the same question I posed to the youth group last, just last Thursday. And this is the question. What would it take for you to believe a person or book, whatever it is, a person or book is speaking infallibly for God? What would it take for you to believe that? So suppose like I claim to be a prophet of God. I don't, by the way claim to be a prophet from God. But let's just, let's play along here a little bit. Let's say I said, okay, yeah, I'm a prophet from God. I claim to be speaking for God. And yeah, you just wouldn't take my word for it, would you? You'd want to see confirmation of that, of that truth. If I claim to be a prophet of God or if a book is making a claim to be from God, you'd want to see some evidence, some proof of that. You wouldn't want to just take my word for it because there's plenty of conflicting religions where people claim to be speaking for God and they believe different things about God, different, uh, they have different scriptures. Uh, some, people, some of them believe in many gods, some believe in one God. They, they all can't be true. And you wouldn't want to say, well, I know what this guy is saying is a prophet or this book is the word of God just because of my feelings and my feels. Because you know what? All different religions claim to have feelings. And emotional experiences. All of them claim that. So it's you just can't take my word for it or have a feeling about it. And so it was interesting to see all the youth answering different reasons as to why they would believe uh, someone was speaking for God. Some of them very creative. But one of the things I went through with them is, okay, so if I said I'm a prophet from God or a book is from God, and so say I predicted that you were going to meet your spouse in Draper, Utah, of all places, right? <laughs> now, say you do meet your spouse in Draper, so I'm saying you're going you're you're to marry somebody and you're going to meet them in Draper, okay? Well, does that prove that I'm speaking for God? I mean, I could just get one lucky, one lucky guess, right? That's not enough. We need more, right? So, okay. So say I'm able to guess the first name of your spouse, or I guess, I guess I'm predicting at this point, predicting that I, I the first name of your spouse. Then I tell you, okay, and you're going to have, say, two or three kids or four kids. Or if it's Utah, better say six kids, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and say, okay, and I, then also, I'm also going to predict what job you're going to be doing. And that ends up being true. Then sadly, I'm able to predict at what age and what natural causes your parents end up passing on. And that ends up being true, sadly. Then I predict... All six of your children's personalities. What kind of personalities they're all going to have. And I just keep on nailing these predictions over and over and over again. There's going to come a point where there's so many, you're just going to be like, well, yeah, this guy is so successful at nailing this, these, uh, predicting this. There's something to this. This guy this guy's speaking for God. He's predicting things that I've never, I mean, people can't even predict this. I mean, I know this from experience. People can't predict even the stock markets or the real estate market. We don't know what's going to go on there. We can't even see out sometimes a year or two in advance. Just talk to any realtor. They can't figure that. It's tough. People who do the stuff for a living can't predict things. But I'm predicting all these things. You would say, okay, after a while, yeah, you know, this guy is speaking for God. But you see, that is exactly what we have with the Bible. That is precisely what we have with the Word of God. You see, Jesus Christ fulfills predictions in the Old Testament, thereby proving the Bible is not just any book making some vacuous claim to be the Word of God, but it is the Word of God. And no other book is like this book. That's why it's the best-selling book in all of human history, the Bible, the most read book in all of human history, because the Bible makes 200-plus promises and predictions about Christ, and Jesus Christ fulfills every one of them. 
To show you how unlikely this is, this is a quote from Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a, a Verdict, but about mathematician Peter Stoner was able to calculate the odds of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. This is what he said. To help visually comprehend the staggering odds of this probability, Stoner proposed that we take that many silver dollars, or, and that's a dated term, but silver dollars, let's say quarters, <laughs> and lay them across the, the state of Texas. In doing so, we find they would stack up across the state two feet deep. If you've ever been driving through West Texas, you know there's a lot of land there. And it just goes on and on. It's the only place I remember going 90 in the freeway, and the speed limit actually said 90 on there. And I was driving to Louisiana to, I was, me and my, my wife were getting married. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Texas goes on and on and on. So just imagine this, a mass of all these silver dollars or quarters stacked up. And so it's two feet deep. Then, uh, then uh, blindfold an enthusiastic volunteer and tell him that he can travel as far as he likes across Texas, but that he must pick up out the marked silver dollar. And that is how difficult it would be for one single man to fulfill 300 plus prophecies. That's how difficult. And so Stoner goes on to say he found out that the odds of any man fulfilling even 48, so we're lowering it a bit, 48 of the 300 Old Testament prophecies jumped to 10 to the 157th power. That is one with 157 zeros after that. That's, if you're into the lottery, that's way worse than the lottery. Those are, I, don't bet on those odds. I mean, picking out one quarter out of, you know, they're two feet deep and you just happen to find the one that's rightly marked out of billions and billions. I don't want to sound like Dr. Evil here, but billions and billions of quarters. It's incredible. And that just shows the odds. This is not just any book. This is the hand of God here. The hand of the Lord. This is a miracle. And the Bible is a, we can see it today as a miracle showing the truthfulness of God. And this is going to be an encouragement to the church of Rome as they are fighting with the Jew and Gentile distinctions here that are going on. There's division in the church. And Paul is going to be using these prophecies to unify them, to give them comfort and hope and unity in Jesus Christ as we start our verse-by-verse -verse study. I didn't give my typical spiel this morning that we're a verse-by-verse -verse Bible preaching church. I'm like a robot usually, but today I'm feeling a little, you know. <laughs> so, but yes, we're a verse-by-verse -verse Bible preaching church. We go through the Bible verse-by-verse -verse because we believe the Bible's the Word of God. We go over all the verses. We don't skip over them. So verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So yeah, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, they have different practices in the first century, and they're not getting along. They're fighting over the Sabbath, the foods, the drinks, the ceremonial laws. They're in conflict because they have different cultures. I mean, Jews and Gentiles in the first century, it's very distinct. Cultural differences. And so Paul says, hey, you know what? Yeah, this, this, the, the Jews might be different. The Gentiles might be different from what you're used to. But guess what? God has welcomed you in Jesus Christ, so you're to welcome them. You know, I mean, imagine God is infinitely holy, and in Christ, He welcomes us by faith. We trust in Jesus, we get His righteousness, and God welcomes us. We couldn't be any more different than God. We're sinful and finite. God is infinite and holy, and yet in Christ, He welcomes, loves, and accepts us. And so he's saying, how much more should you not just accept each other, love each other? If God accepts you, you should accept these minor cultural differences. 
and beliefs, small beliefs differences in between you two, background differences. And so we in the church, you know, people might have a different ethnic background, a different uh, uh, preferences, different ideas, whatever it is, but we're to welcome them. Even though they're different than us, we're to welcome them in Christ, even if they have small differences over non-essentials of the Christian faith. We're to welcome them, and so we're to find greater unity in the gospel of justification by faith alone, that Jesus died for all of our sins. We get his righteousness by trusting, receiving him by grace and faith alone. That is the gospel that God welcomes us. That gospel brings unity, and when we focus on the big thing, we forget about our petty differences. And so what Paul's going to do now in this next section, Romans 15, 8 through 13 is to show that prophecy the Old Testament is both for Jew and Gentiles. Jesus is a servant of both Jews and Gentiles. He has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy, and that includes the Gentiles as well as the Jewish people, because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. But he's for both. He's for all people. Romans 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised of the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness. It's to show and demonstrate the truthfulness of the Word of God in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And he's going to use the Old Testament fulfillment here to show this is all in the Old Testament. It shows the truthfulness of God. He gives us a quote from 2 Samuel 22.50, where he says, he quotes it here, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, from Deuteronomy 32, 43, he says, and I say again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the people extol them. So the Gentiles are in the Old Testament. And that's from Psalm um, 117 and 1. And again, from Isaiah, Isaiah, he's quoting here from Isaiah eleven ten. He says, the root of Jesse will come. That's Jesus. So it's predicting Jesus. It shows the truthfulness of the word of God. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, again Jesus, in him will the Gentiles hope, find hope. And so, yeah, in this, fulfilling this prophecy, he says in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So he's saying, yes, because Jesus came to serve the Jews, fulfill Old Testament prophecy and the Gentiles, it's, it gives us peace and hope and it blesses us. And so, yeah, he, Jesus became a servant to the circumcised to show and demonstrate the truthfulness of God's word. Now, what is the chief way in which Jesus served us? By living a perfect life in our place and dying a death we could never die, by taking the wrath of God in our place, by sacrificing himself in his life, in his death, and in his burial and resurrection, he served the Jews and the Gentiles. And it says here that this, this, this service of Jesus was prophesied so that it proves the truthfulness of God's word. It verifies the word of God. And now I'm going to go through all of this here and just briefly show you all of the fulfilled prophecies. I'm going to mention, I mean, just a few of them, 21 of them here. Uh, you could go to 25 or 40, but I'm sure we want to get lunch eventually here, right? So I don't want to you know, have all 300. Be another like 10-part series right there. But I want to read, this is what the Old Testament predicts before it happens. One, Jesus born of a virgin. He's God and man. I don't have enough fingers, so I probably should just start, stop counting. <laughs> born in Bethlehem, continual growth of, the king, of his kingdom. Brings salvation to tons of people, including Gentiles, as we just saw. 
rides into Jerusalem on a donkey bringing peace, destroys the work of Satan, is flogged at his death, and it gets specific, that his flesh would be torn, pierced in his hands and feet at his death, and there's also, it describes just specifically how he would be tortured. It's amazing how clear it is. Remained quiet before he was crucified, despised and rejected by men, buried in a rich man's tomb, died a criminal's death, condemned to die next to sinners, offspring of Abraham from the line of David, suffering and death was for the punishment for our sins. People mocked him at his crucifixion, crushed by God for our sins, spiritually healed and righteous by his death. His days were prolonged after his death, which is resurrection. It's just a few. There's a lot of them, aren't there? And so Stoner says that using modern science and probability in reference to these just eight prophecies, if you just have eight prophecies, he, he says, you find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies is one out of uh, 10 to the 17th power. That is, that is one with 17 zeros after it. That's... Now, we're doing a lot more than just eight. We're doing 21. So you got to figure there's a lot more than even 34 zeros after. We're talking crazy odds. It's like you like playing the lottery and winning like 10 times in a row. Don't play the lottery. It's a losing situation. It really is. The odds are really against you. But could you imagine playing the lottery, you know, 10 times, you win 10 times, you know, the jackpot, the big one. You, you play 10 times and you win every time. You're like, wait, I'm winning every time. Maybe the mob's behind this or this is a miracle. I'm not sure why this is happening. You wouldn't say, oh, it's just a matter of chance. You would think someone finally tuned and someone designed and orchestrated for you to win the lottery 10 times in a row. You wouldn't say, yeah, I just got lucky 10 times. No, you didn't. Come on. So we know someone's behind this book and that's God. And so, yeah, and what's even shocking about this is that even secular scholars grant this, that many of these prophecies are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the scene. This is according to secular historians. Some of them, thousands of years. That is downright supernatural. It proves that the Bible is the word of God. Now, the first one we're going to see is a little more esoteric and vague, but it, it does outline the course of the entire Bible before it happens. And it's in the book of Genesis. Our first prophecy, thousands of years here in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15. This is about the defeat of Satan and the virgin birth. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He, notice it's singular, not we, he shall bruise your head, Satan's head. That's what it's talking about. Bruising Satan's head, and he shall bruise, and you shall bruise, referring to Satan. God, God's talking to the devil right now. So just keep that in mind. This is God saying this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring, he, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan bruises Jesus' heel, and Satan bruises and gives a, a blow to Satan's head. Now, you know, I, I whenever, whenever Abigail and Kenny get their heads hit, I always worry. It's the worst place for a child to get hit is in the head because that's where you can cause severe lifelong damage. I mean, get hit in the head, it can be a bad thing for you, right? I mean, you know, they get, little, little, they get you know, a thorn in their heel. It's no big deal. I'm like not even worried at that point. 
Uh, my blood pressure doesn't even escalate at that point. So, but a head wound's a big deal. And so here what this is saying is that Jesus will offer a devastating blow to Satan's head. He will knock him out. He will defeat him. And, and then in return, because of that, that blow, Satan will then hurt Jesus back, his heel. A non-lethal blow, because Jesus, what? He resurrects, right? So this is not a, you know, he, Satan does not defeat Jesus. Jesus is the one who defeats Satan. That's the idea here, okay? But what's really going to bake your biscuit on this one, really surprising, is it says her offspring. Uh, I, I'm not going to get too direct on this, but I think we can read between the lines. The Hebrew is her seed. The seed belongs to the man. Anybody who knows basic biology knows that. The seed is the man's, not the woman's. So what does it mean, her offspring? It means that God would use Mary's DNA to bring Jesus into her womb. It's a virgin birth. There's no man here. It's her seed. It's a virgin birth that God supernaturally causes. So this predicts not only the defeat of Satan and that Jesus will sacrifice himself, causing harm to himself, but it won't be a defeat. But this predicts a virgin birth. Now, that might be a little vague, but what you're going to see is I'm going to start off a light, and the prophecies are going to get more and more specific. And by specific, I do mean weirdly specific. But that should start us off. This next one just is kind of going along with what Paul's point here is in Romans 15, is that through Abraham, the nations, the Gentiles will be blessed. It's not just a Jewish thing, which the Old Testament, you know, is, is, involves a lot of Jewish people, and that the Jewish people through Abraham are going to bless the Gentiles. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in Abraham, in his seed, in his lineage, you, uh, in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That sounds like massive growth of the kingdom there. It's not just the Jewish people that are blessed by this, but the Gentiles as he's trying to bring them together here through prophecy in chapter 15. Now the book of Isaiah contains some of the most Specific predictions in the Bible, and it's hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ comes on the scene. But look at Isaiah 7.14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. Now some people who are skeptics will say, Well, the Hebrew word just can mean young woman. Alma can just mean young woman. The problem is... When the ancient Hebrews translated it from Hebrew to Greek in the Septuagint, the, the Greek word was Parthenos, which only meant virgin. That means as the ancient Jews read this, it only meant a virgin, not just some vanilla young women, but this was a virgin birth, Parthenos, as it's translated. So this predicts the virgin birth. And not only a virgin birth, but it would be God with us. Because Jesus is uniquely God, so he has a unique birth. And again, uh, we have him from the line of David and that he is God and man. He's a child. He's God and man. Just as Christianity teaches and then Christianity will grow. The kingdom will grow and grow. It says in Isaiah 9, 6 or 7, for us, to born, for us a child is born, to us a son is given. This might be fresh in your mind from Christmas. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase. Increase, not decrease. Not a failure pile in a sadness bolt. Increase. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom is to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you get here this amazing prophecy that Jesus is God and man from the line of David. So he's from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, and that his kingdom will grow and grow. If you look at, according to Lifeway Christianity, Christianity is growing now faster than the human population. It has grown throughout the centuries. It continues to grow and is the world's largest religion. So people don't know that. But yeah, Christianity is the largest world religion. And yet it's predicted that his kingdom will grow and grow and grow. There's no way that anybody, any human can predict this. People can't predict the real estate market. They can't predict the, predict the stock markets. But yet this is predicted thousands of years ago and it's happening in our day. Incredible. But then it gets clearer and clearer as we trot along here. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, the Messiah, ruler over Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient times. The Hebrew there suggests he's from eternity. He's not just a regular dude. He is Almighty God, the Lord Almighty. He is from eternity. That's what the Hebrew word Alam means, from eternity, because Jesus Christ is God and Lord. And it, it just keeps on getting more precise, the picture of Jesus. I mean, you get the, almost all the New Testament predictions here in the Old Testament. This is incredible. Zechariah 9.9. Here it talks about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and the Gentiles. Uh, he was speaking peace to the Gentiles, spreading the gospel through the work of Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Predicts this, what Jesus did in his life. On a colt, on the foil of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. He's not coming to, he's not coming to, to be a warlord like William Wallace. He's not like that. And the battle bow he shall cut off. And he shall speak war? No. He shall speak peace to the nations, to the Gentiles. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Incredible prediction of the growth of the kingdom and speaking peace to the nations. The Old Testament proves that the Bible is the word of God. Zechariah 12, and this is a shocking one, where it says God himself will be pierced. And just so you know, as we read Zechariah 12, 10, this is God talking. This is the Lord talking here. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, when they look on me, this is God talking, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Pierced. Now, you might think that sounds like crucifixion, but there's something deeper going on with the Hebrew word here. It's incredible. It says, they shall mourn for him as one mourns, for as one mourns for a child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Notice it says, when they look on me. God's talking here, that's very clear. But the Jewish people rejected Jesus. They said, the blood be on us and our children. And they delivered him over to Pilate to be pierced. That's what God's people did at that time. What's amazing about this word pierced 
It's a Hebrew word that is used for piercing or thrusting a sword into somebody or thrusting a spear into somebody. That's what the Hebrew tells. And what happened? At the de they didn't break his legs because he was the Passover lamb. So the Roman soldier took a spear and pierced Jesus. That's what this Hebrew word is suggesting here. So it's predicting specifically what would happen to him at his sacrificial death. Now this starts getting creepy. When you get to, when you get to Psalm 22, things just start getting weird. It gets weirder and weirder how specific and eerie these predictions are, knowing that we know this is not just any book. This is the word of God. Psalm 22, this is about the death of Jesus. You can tell right away that it is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exactly what Jesus Christ said on that cross. Isn't that right? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Jesus took hell on that cross. He was not saved on that cross. He took our condemnation, our penalty. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Jesus, sweat tears of blood in the garden. Yet you are holy enthroned on, praises, on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Jesus was despised. But you know what's really interesting is that word worm. That Hebrew word for worm translates to a worm in the Middle East, eastern section, where worms would live in trees. They'd be a part of a tree. Jesus was on the tree. And, and this particular worm was crushed for a red dye known or translated as crimson. Red. Amazing connection here. He is drawing that Jesus would be on a tree, the picture he's painting, and that he would bleed out for us. A worm, a worm that is in a tree with red, that as blood as red dye be used for that. He says, all who see me, verse 7, mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's what they said to him. At his death, they mocked him. They berated him. The criminals berated him. The leadership of his people, they berated him. Yet you are he who took me from my womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Oh, you who was ca I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been, you have, uh, been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. The demonic world is having a heyday when Jesus is being crucified. They open their wide their mouths at me and like, like raving and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. You need to stretch someone on a cross. Very easy to dislocate. Many bones. So, says here, it, the heart is like wax. It melts within my breast. Jesus, actually, when they, when, they, when they stabbed him with a spear, blood and water came out because he had a, a particular heart condition that causes the heart almost to like kind of melt. It's amazing. My strength is dried up like pot shred, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. Jesus asked for wine. His mouth is dry. 
when he's dying. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me, as would be happening at the cross. They have pierced my hands and feet. That sounds like the crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. This is saying that Jesus would not have any of his bones broken. They crushed the other two thieves' bones. They stabbed Jesus to see if he was still alive. His, he was to be like the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, when it was sacrificed, was not to have any bones broken. He can count all of his bones. None of them are broken. That's what the expression in, insinuates here. And then this is really the kicker. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. That's exactly what happened at the crucifixion. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it occurred. I mean, how clear does it have to be? But Isaiah 53 is among the clearest prediction of what happened to Jesus. It's so clear. In fact, it's so clear that if someone doesn't have a Bible knowledge and you just read them out of, out of Isaiah 53 randomly, they will think you're reading from the New Testament. That's how clear this is that you can trick somebody. I know people that do this, that trick people to, to evangelize. They say, where do you think this is in the Bible? That's in the New Testament. No, it's in the Old Testament. That's how obvious the predictions of Jesus Christ are. Isaiah 53, 2-3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It doesn't come from the clouds, you know, shining. You know, he, Jesus wasn't a particularly attractive guy. That's what this is saying. He came to humble himself, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He was despised and rejected by man. He was rejected. He said in John 1, he's rejected from his own. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew what grief was more than anybody. His whole life was met with perpetual sacrifice for us. Every second of his life. And as for... As for, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was rejected by his people and the Gentiles. You could, you could see this in his life. That's what he was, in his, especially, especially in his suffering and his death, he was rejected. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So he took the wrath of God. He was, he was struck by God on that cross so that we would never fall under the condemnation of God, so that we would never be forsaken by God. But it says, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced for our sins. Sounds like you're reading out of the New Testament. Pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our wickedness. He was crushed for that. Upon him was the chastisement which brought us peace, bringing us peace with God. And with his wounds we are healed. What's really amazing, the Hebrew word for wounds is better translated as stripes or stripes from a whip, specifically. And a whip that would tear the flesh 
Well, as we know historically, that's a cat of nine tails. If you watch The Passion of Christ, that whip was a whip that gave slashes that tore the skin. That's what the Hebrew word suggests here. That's how specific we're getting here. It's incredible. A pierce of obviously reference to his hands and his feet, which we just read in Psalm 22. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the wickedness of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. If you look at the execution and trial of Jesus, Jesus didn't say very much. They had to like kind of coax him to say anything because he wasn't talking. Pilate says at one point, don't you know I have the power to release you? Why don't you say anything to defend yourself? It's crazy just how canny this is, how this aligns so perfectly with the experience of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years by all scholars. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, that means dead, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. He, he did nothing wrong. He was a sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was perfect. So when it says here that Jesus died like a wicked person, what that means is obviously crucifixion. That was for like a Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. So he died a criminal's death. And yeah, normally when you die, when you died that kind of death, you would be uh, put in a shallow grave and eaten by dogs. Not a pretty picture. But his death, uh, his burial is different because a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, gave him his tomb in a, in a nice tomb. And that's how a rich man would have been buried. So he has a poor person's death, crucifixion, but he's buried in a, uh, married. Oh, oh my gosh, buried. I'm, I got in the wrong. <laughs> buried in a rich man's tomb. Incredible prediction. Since the fate of, as I said, any crucified person would have been just in a shallow grave eaten by dogs. But Jesus had a unique death and burial in a rich man's tomb. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So we have sinned against a holy, infinite God, and we deserve an infinite punishment. But here that punishment is absorbed by Jesus Christ. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How, he's just killed. How does his days get prolonged? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How does this happen if he's killed? The resurrection. This predicts the resurrection. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We're declared and accounted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the active obedience and merit of Jesus Christ. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoils among the strong because he poured to death and was numbered. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So yeah, so he was numbered with the transgressors. This means he was numbered with the criminals on each side. He was numbered with them, with criminals as he was put to death. So this, this predicts so many specific things. I mean... I mean, I, I honestly, all the things I've said is more than 21. As I just kept on studying the text, I could just come up with more and more and more and more. It is just overwhelming. Now, you're like, well, why is not everybody a Christian and bow down to Jesus? I mean, it's, I don't know. It's probably a good question. People try to say this. This is what people try to say is one last ditch effort to get out of this. Well, you know, this prophecies, uh, you know, the New Testament authors, they read these Old Testament prophecies and then they made the, the New Testament on the basis of the Old Testament. They just saw, oh yeah, these prophecies, let's just write in Jesus. That, is, that assumes Jesus is a myth, that he just made him up. Problem is, no New Testament scholar, secular, atheist, Christian, no scholar thinks that. All of them think that Jesus existed, he lived, he died on a cross, and his apostles saw, uh, saw him after his death. They don't know what to do with that, but because we have outside secular sources, that say Jesus did these things, that Jesus did miracles. We have all of this information about Jesus. So you can't just say they just made it all up. And then you really have this issue of some of the things that are predicted about Jesus, the, the authors don't try to pur purposely force it in and say, oh, here's the fulfillment of prophecy. One of them is, of course, the cat of nine tells. It doesn't say that he would be whipped in that way when you read through the Gospels. We just know that through historical investigation. So the text actually doesn't draw that comparison. You have to read between the lines historically to get that, to get that fulfilled prophecy. Obviously, the Gospels don't comment on Jesus' looks. Now, they do say that he humiliated himself and he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, but they don't talk about, you know, Jesus a five or a six. They don't do that. They don't go into Jesus' looks at all. And then, again, the piercing of the hands and the feet. Now, it's implied as you read the Gospel, but it's not explicitly stated. So just to say that the, the, the authors of the Bible just made this up to cobble it, to fit it together. It doesn't read that way. It doesn't read like they're trying to do that. And besides all that, we have outside sources, many of them, that confirm these facts about Christ. And then you deal with the fact that, okay, why are they trying to make this up about Jesus, this Messiah that dies? It would never, would never catch on in the first century anyways. And, you know, they, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but, I mean, uh, liars make bad martyrs. You know, if you're, if you're lying and making it up, they were willing to die for the truth of their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died, that he lived. So it's not very plausible to think that they just wrote this all in. And so there's, there's that kind of one last ditch effort. And so, yeah, this predicts many things. Predicts, I mean, and oh, yeah, this too. This is, this is, this is really amazing. This predicts the growth of Christianity. You can't write that in. I mean, you can't, we can't predict the stock market, let alone what's going to happen in 100 years, whether a religion is going to grow or not. So there's no way you can know any of this. And this obviously clearly shows that this is just not any book. This is different than any other book. People say, oh, there's all these different religious books. No, 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 no. None of them have this many prophecies. And if you find one, I'll quit my job as a pastor and I'll build you a bridge. But you can't. So I have to, I've got pretty good job security here. If you, you're not going to find any book with this many prophecies that have this much fulfillment. This is incredible. You can take it to the bank that your sins are forgiven. That God accepts you in Christ. And that's why Paul says in Romans 15 here, this is why it brings so much comfort and peace to our hearts. 
Because I know he lives. It's not just how I feel, but it's in reality even when I don't feel that way. I know that Christ lives and he died for me and that I am saved and I am accepted by God in Christ. But you see, the amazing thing about Jesus and his claims is they're not, not just true, but they're also beautiful. That Jesus sacrificed everything for me and yet he still puts up with me every day and loves me and is kind and is gentle to me even though we're all train wrecks. He's still kind, loving, and gentle with you. This is what is said about in the, predicting Jesus in the Old Testament. This is what it says about him. It says, Behold my servant, this is the same servant in Isaiah 53, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him he will bring forth justice to the nations, the Gentiles, salvation. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is amazing here that he will not break a bruised reed, someone who's crushed and broken and is a trainer. He's not going to abuse them or break them. He is going to be gentle and kind and lowly to them, even though they're sinners. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you are a mess this morning and you need the grace and mercy and gentleness of Jesus Christ, come to him by faith alone. And he will love you on your worst days and your best days because Jesus was perfect in your place. So he will always be gentle with you if you receive him by grace and faith alone. Let us pray and give God glory for that.